0: Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. What happens in your mind when I say the words to you, wine country? What do you think when you think wine country? You probably think um, Northern California, right, Napa Valley, where all the, the grapes grow and and all those great, well, I'm not a wine drinker, so I, don't, I can't attest to how great the wines are coming out of Napa Valley, but some of you in here could, I'm sure. And uh, I, I'm told that the, the grapes that come out of there are great. Uh, maybe you think of Italy and all the grapes that are grown in that region of the country. I wonder if you think about Turkey. Maybe not, but Turkey is one of the places where grapes grow really, really well, and they have lots of vineyards there. And um, that's, that's where these churches, these seven churches in Revelation, that's where they're, they're located in the country of Turkey. Back in the day, it was known as the, the Roman province of Asia. I have some video I want to show you of the modern-day city Alashihar. Um I want to show you some footage there. We're going to talk about this city today. This particular city is modern-day Philadelphia. It was called Philadelphia back in the day. It has very rich soil because of all the volcanic um, ash, and the soil is very volcanic. So because of that, um, it's a great country to grow grapes. And, and if you wanted to go today and you wanted to do a, an archaeological dig and, and look around the city of Elashahar and see what was there remaining from when it was Philadelphia, I hate to report to you that you wouldn't find a whole lot. There's not a whole lot to show you. The only video that I really can show you is what you're about to see this these are not even first century ruins that you're going to see now these these are sixth century ruins from the church of saint john and uh, there were six columns i think only three of those remain of the six that were there certain cities like um, smyrna and i'm not not smyrna ephesus and laodicea and pergamum there are all kinds of ruins there are stadiums there are theaters there are temples that you can go see. There's there's all kinds of stuff that you can see. It's not the case with cities like Thyatira and Philadelphia. You basically would go there, you'd look around for about five seconds, and you'd say, let's eat. There's nothing here to see. Uh, let's, let's eat. However, if you were to go to Alashahar today, you are likely to see something that you would not see in Terre Haute. At least I don't think you'd see this in downtown Terre Haute. I'm going to show you a video. It has absolutely no redeeming value whatsoever other than to make you laugh, okay? Um, there's a donkey. Here's how you get rid of a donkey in heart. Dude comes out and starts banging on him with a broom. Check that out. Poor donkey. Now he's out in the street. So, so this is filmed in the city that we're going to talk about today. Back in the day, it was known as Philadelphia. Uh, Today, it is known as Alashihar. If you had lived in Philadelphia back in the day, uh, what what would have been Western Turkey today, it was the Roman province of Asia back then. What that meant to you was you had a life that was very uncertain and very insecure. And there are several reasons why I'm going to get into those uh, here in just a minute. The first of which is this. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake in this particular part of the country. And the city was completely destroyed. And as the people left the city and then they came back in to try to repair their city and build it back up, the aftershocks were so frequent and so violent that they they literally, it was very, very dangerous for them to go back into the city. And so they were trying to repair what had been broken and they couldn't many times repair it because the aftershocks kept knocking it down. So many of the people just took to going out into the countryside where it was safer and things couldn't fall on them. They just decided, you know what? We're not we're not doing that anymore. It was just safer in the country. So to be a resident of Philadelphia meant uncertainty and it meant insecurity. Most of you, if I took a quiz this morning for you and I said, what does the city of Philadelphia, what's the name Philadelphia mean? Could you tell me? Let me think. City of brotherly love. Now, here's why they call it that. Back in this particular uh, era, back two thousand years ago, there was a king. By the name of Attalus the second and and he had a brother who had been king before him, and his name was Eumenes. so he had Attalus and Eumenes, who were brothers. Many times when these kings would these brothers would become kings, they would become rival kings. They didn't like each other. Um, you hear stories about how one king one brother would kill another to become the king. I mean it was a lot of crazy stuff like that, but not with Attalus and with Eumenes. They loved each other deeply, they were very devoted to one another. And uh, as somewhat of a commentary on the relationship between those two, Attalus eventually comes to be known as Attalus II Philadelphius because of the relationship with his brother. And either because of his brother or because of him, the city came to be titled Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, what happened after the earthquake is uh, Tiberius Caesar made some concessions to this particular city to help them in a time of trouble so that they wouldn't be uh, physically strapped. He basically relieved them of paying taxes to Rome for five years. Pretty good deal for the city of Philadelphia. And so when this happens, they decide to rename the city Neo Caesarea after Tiberius Caesar, who has made arrangements for them to have this this relief from the, the taxes that needed to go to Rome. But then he dies eventually, so they change the name back to Philadelphia. Um, Then later, they received some more help from the Roman emperor Vespasian, and Vespasian had a wife named Flavia, so they decide to rename the city Flavia after Vespasian's wife until Vespasian died, and then they renamed the city Philadelphia. So if you're keeping score, that's three Philadelphias, one Neo-Caesarea, and one Flavia. If you lived in Philadelphia, things were uncertain. Things were insecure. You didn't even know what your city was supposed to be called. Where do you live? Well, it was Philadelphia, then it was Neo-Caesarea, now it's Philadelphia, now it's Flavia, now it's Philadelphia. Would that confuse you? It was crazy. It was just really kind of strange. To live in Philadelphia meant insecurity, and it meant uncertainty. And then there was this terrible thing that happened. By edict of the emperor... And it just kind of wrecked the whole region. There was a guy named Emperor Domitian in 90 AD, and he, he passed this law or handed down this edict that 50% of the vineyards that were in existence were to be uprooted and destroyed. If you own vineyards in this particular time, and that's said to you, that's a problem for you. Now, they, they wonder why um, they wanted him to do this, because the soil was so rich, the volcanic soil in this particular part of the country is really, really good for growing grapes. He ordered that, the, that 50% of the vineyards were to be uprooted and destroyed, and in their place, grain was to be planted, and they were to raise grain. And it didn't really make sense. Grain didn't grow there nearly as well as the grapes did, and there's been some conjecture as to why he would have said this. One of the reasons that they think is possible is that he had a large army, Um, they were in a lot of fights, and he needed to feed his armies. So he, he wanted to make sure he had plenty of grain to feed his armies. Another theory is that he did not want the vineyards in his particular part of the country to rival what was happening in Italy and in Rome. That wasn't a good thing to eclipse what was going on in Rome, so he wanted to cut the production so that they didn't get mad and there was no bad blood or anything like that. So the decision basically... Uh, wreaked havoc financially on the city. It was, it was not good, and they literally had to go through and pull up half their product and destroy it. What does it mean to be a person who lives in Philadelphia? It means that your life is uncertain, and it means that there is a great deal of insecurity. And the weird thing about this part of the world at this particular time is that there's a large, there's a massive Jewish population in this particular part of the region, of the, in this particular part of the world, um they they had um, basically brought Jews in from other parts of the country, and so I showed you this this video I think it was last week in Sardis. I showed you the the temple the the synagogue in Sardis, um, where this massive Jewish population would meet for their services. This particular temple uh, synagogue would hold three thousand people at one time you could you know you could fit them all in there and they could have their services and so Really, when they, when they go to these ruins, and this one in particular, they couldn't believe how big the synagogue was. Um, so there's this massive population of Jews, not just in Sardis, but in other cities as well. And in one of the cities, it was Philadelphia that had a large number of them. Um, because of the large number of Jews, they seem to have had a certain level of political power and lobbying power. And they were able, get this, They were able to achieve for themselves uh, an exemption through some amount of political clout. They had an exemption from going to the temple to the emperor and they did not have to offer sacrifices to the temple uh, of the emperor, which was a pretty amazing thing for them. They had laws that said, you will have no other gods before me You know, God said, I don't want you to make any graven images and bow down to them. So they were able to parlay that into enough lobbying power that they were able to be relieved of this burden of having to go down the street and offer sacrifices um, to the temple of the emperor. And so as Christianity begins, to the Romans it was more of a subset. They didn't, you know, it really wasn't a big deal to them. Uh, It was just a subset of the Jewish faith. They they saw that Jesus had been raised in a Jewish home. The disciples of Jesus were all Jewish. Um, Paul, who converts to Christianity, has deep ties to the the Judaism. And so from a Roman perspective, they saw Christianity as a sect within Judaism. But if you get excommunicated from the synagogue, if you are are no longer allowed to go in and worship with your, your Jewish brothers and sisters, then you've got a problem. Because what happened is once these people start professing Jesus, they're told, we don't want you in the synagogue anymore. Don't come here. And, and they were basically saying, no, no, these Christians aren't a part of us anymore. They're something different from us. We don't want to be identified with that. And all of a sudden, you are now obligated to go down the street because you can't go to the synagogue. You're not under that umbrella of protection You've got to go now to a, a temple of this of the emperor and offer sacrifices to that particular emperor. Um, and to not do that was more than just a religious thing; it was a political thing. Um, it was viewed as treasonous. It was it was viewed as you know you didn't put your hand over your heart when you said the pledge of allegiance, and you you didn't stand and take your hat off when they played the the national anthem, and you don't believe in Fourth of July, and you don't do fireworks and you know, wave American flags. I mean, it was, a, it was a really bad thing to not go offer these sacrifices at the temple. And um, when you start talking about the kingdom of God and Jesus is Lord, um, you're going to hear things like, no, 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 Caesar is our Lord. We have named our city after him twice now. Uh, he's so important to us. And And you start talking about the kingdom of God, and some of the most dangerous words you can speak in Philadelphia at this particular time were Jesus is Lord. They would say, no, no, no. We have but one Lord. His name is Caesar. Don't talk like that. So if you live in Philadelphia, it means great insecurity, and it means a great deal of uncertainty for you. And things as a Christian, things for you got worse really, really fast. So in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, we see that not only were they suffering, these these Christians at Philadelphia, um, we see how they were suffering. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, the second part says this, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says to the followers of Philadelphia, I know that you don't have a lot of strength. I know that you're marginalized. I know you don't have any lobbying power. I know that as far as a group with any weight or authority in this city, you have none. I know all that. I know that this little town despises you, and I know that that you have been excommunicated from the synagogue. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is very powerful because we see that not only were they suffering, they were suffering well. They were suffering faithfully. And there is a difference. Not everyone who suffers, suffers well. There's a kind of suffering that our response to it Pulls us closer to the heart of God, and our faith grows. And there is a response to suffering that causes us to move away from God, and to let our faith grow cold, and our faith dies. Maybe you know somebody like this. Maybe you know somebody who um, they used to go to church, they used to be plugged in, they used to be a person of prayer. You knew them as a person of great faith. They never missed church. They you know, they just—they just, they were everything that you wanted to be and, and they were everything you thought was great and right in the world. And then one day you realize, hey, they, they aren't into that anymore. And you go up to him finally and you say, hey, you used to be so involved. You used to be so fired up about the Lord. What, what happened to you? And he tells you this story. He says, you know, we, we had this business. We built it from the ground up. It took us a decade, about 12 years to build this business. And we, we honored God with the money that we made. We tried to make this business a company that, that would honor God at every uh, turn. And then 2008 comes along and, and the bottom falls out of our economy. And in the course of one year, we lost what we had worked so hard to gain. And to be real honest with you, uh, I'm not really on speaking terms with God right now. I don't want to hear his name. I don't want to go to church. I don't pray anymore. And, and there is just this, pressure this life pressure that has allowed to be come in between this guy and god and it has pushed him far far away from god you run into another guy and you say man something changed in you i mean i never would have thought you were a person of prayer i never i mean i knew you went to church once in a while but you never really struck me as the type that took it seriously i never really thought that you would be somebody that would get white hot for god and yet, you don't ever seem to miss church. Your spiritual life seems to be rich and deep. Something has happened. Something has kicked in for you. What is it? And he says, well, I'll tell you a story. We, we, we had this business. We built it from the ground up. And, and and it took us about a decade of 12 years to get this thing really going the right way. And we, you know, we were doing great. And then all of a sudden, 2008 happened. And the bottom fell out of the economy. And within a year's time, we looked up, and our business had basically collapsed and i had to really find out what my real identity was going to be was my real identity going to be that of a business owner who had this business or was i going to be known as a person who walked with god and i wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy and i certainly wouldn't wish it on my friends but that season of my life has been one of the best seasons of my life what happens under identical circumstances One person, their faith dies. Under the exact same circumstance, someone else might might have a a renaissance in their faith, have a, 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 a real growth spurt in their faith. Suffering is a greenhouse for spiritual growth. And suffering is also the place where faith can go to die. We choose. When we open the words here, And the words of Jesus fall on this congregation. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied him. He says, I know how tired you are. I know how desperate you feel. I know how you feel insecure and uncertain. But you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. It isn't just that these people were suffering, it's that they were suffering well. And, and, and we, we, I want that badly for us as a congregation. I want that badly for me. It's possible for us to be at our best when things are at their worst, when we feel betrayed and abandoned or something is being crushed in us. In the middle of suffering, where does the heart, where's it gonna go? Will it be the kind of suffering that is a greenhouse for your faith? Or will it be the kind of suffering where your faith goes to die? We will suffer. Some of us will suffer more than others, but it is a certainty that in a broken world, we will all taste suffering. There is a cup that we will all drink from. The question is will we suffer well? There are three different images that I want us to see this morning together as we move through this passage. We're going to look at an open door, we're going to look at a crown, and we're going to look at a pillar. I want to show you a picture here. You're walking down the street and, you know, there's all these doors to your left and to your right. And as you walk down this street, uh, all these doors are closed. But you come to one door and as you, you come upon it, you, you realize that the door is open to you. And you're able to walk through it. And when you poke your head through, you see this beautiful courtyard. You're able to walk in. No one restricts you from going in there. You walk in, it's beautiful. It's a place that you want to stay And you feel welcome. It is a door of access. It is a door of welcome for you. I want you to keep that in mind as I read what I'm about to read. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut he's speaking and he says, look, I know you're going through a time of uncertainty. I know it's very insecure for you. I know this is a time of deep suffering, but I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I think this was very, very powerful to them because the door of the synagogue had been slapped in their face. It had just been slammed shut for them and there was no way they were going to be, they literally could say, there used to be a community of people that loved us, that we belonged to, that we, we considered brothers, and we are, we are no longer welcome among them anymore. They have shut that door in our face. And Jesus says, yes, but my door is open to you. I have opened a door to you, and you are welcome here. You have a home here. I have opened a door that no one can shut, and what is shut, I can open. The door's been opened to you. It was a door of rescue. It was a door of fellowship. It was a door of salvation and sonship. It was a door that said, you are welcome here. They have pushed you out, but I've brought you home. I wonder what it did for those people who felt so insecure. See, here's the thing. These were real people who met in a real place, wherever they met as a congregation, and we can only imagine that it was a difficult arrangement. But at some point, somebody walked in with this letter that had been written to this church and someone was going to unseal it and roll it out and read to these people what the Lord had said to them. And I think that when they open this letter and they hear the words, I have opened a door to you, I wonder if some of them wept because they didn't feel like doors were open to them. I have opened the door to you. They would say, no, no, the door's been shut in our face. And Jesus would say, no, no, the door to the synagogue has been shut in your face, but I have opened, my door is open to you. I wonder if we went around the room today and we just let you vent a little bit. I wonder what you would say what doors have been slammed in your face. For some of you, it would be the door of children. For some of you, it would be the door of relationship. For others of you, it would be career. It might be education. Maybe it's good health for you. Maybe for you, the door that's been shut for you is the door of financial security. You just never really seem to to feel like you've got what you're going to need. Jesus said, if you feel insecure, if you feel marginalized, and you've come to know me, my door is open, and you are welcome here. I, I think the image of the power of the open door is a very powerful image for them. A, a couple of weeks ago, I referenced a guy named Mark Beaumont. Mark Beaumont is a—he authored a book called *The Man Who Cycled the World*. He—he was 24 years old at the time. He was from Scotland, and he decided that he wanted to break the world record of cycling around the world. No small task. 18,000. 297 miles, and he was going to do it, get this, he was going to do it alone and unsupported. Okay? Usually when they do these things, they got this team of people with them, vans and trucks and all this stuff, extra bikes, not him. Alone and unsupported. And he's trying to smash the world record by two months if all goes well. I want to show you some snippets of this bike ride. It, it, uh, was, it was covered by the BBC and the first one is of him. He's getting ready to leave Paris, and he's saying goodbye to his mother. And you're going to see him uh, leaving Paris. It's the very beginning of his journey, and uh, I want you to see. I want you to see him leave
1: for family and friends. This is the last time they'll see him for seven months. Are you okay. Hey, I'm fine. Ten, nine, nine eight. eight.
2: Seven, six,
1: five, four, three, one, two, one. The clock has started. 18,000 miles of pedaling lie ahead. But ominously, after just 30 minutes, he's
2: exhausted. We've just done about ten miles out of Paris, and I just completely hit the wall. Um, about four or five miles out, I, I thought that the adrenaline would sort of see me through, and I'd feel good. But I was so tired that I, I, I don't know whether it was nerves or tired or a combination of the two. I mean, it was my, my eyes were just shutting on me as I was cycling along there.
1: A shot of caffeine hits the spot, but there's still ninety miles to go if Marks to hit his daily target, and it's only day one
0: really, 18,000 miles, dude gets half hour out of Paris, 10 miles down the road, and I got to stop for coffee. I'm falling asleep on my bicycle. How do you hang in there when you've got a long way to go and you've just taken a couple of steps and you're worn out? What's that saying, the, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step? And you take that one step and it's like, "Woo! I need some coffee. Whew. What do you say to this guy? The words of Jesus, see, I have placed before you an open door. The first image is the open door. The second image I want to talk about this morning is a crown. A crown. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Jesus says, hang, hang on to what you have. See to it that nobody takes your crown. Now we hear that word crown, and I think in our head we, we envision this gold crown with, with uh, jewels in it. You know, that's kind of the image we have. The term crown most frequently used in Scripture, especially the New Testament, is is not a that kind of a king's crown it's a it's a victorious crown it's a it's an athletic crown i told you about ephesus and smyrna and their olympic games every five years i told you about that a couple weeks ago Um, every city of size would have its own stadium and in every city of size you would go and you would watch them compete in different games where they had trained very hard running games discus uh, boxing um, javelin all all that kind of stuff and the winner's for their efforts, would receive a crown. A couple of weeks ago, I showed you this image of Michael Phelps in the 2004 Athens Olympics. Um, we're very familiar with watching our athletes bend over and receive a medal around their neck, and especially those that receive the gold medal prize those gold medals. The, I think most people, most athletes, I know if I had ever been good enough and fortunate enough to be able to compete and win a gold medal, and I actually got one, that thing would be in a very safe place. I mean, that would probably be one of my prized possessions. You see on their heads these these um, wreaths. That was a, basically a tip of the cap to the, the Olympics that we're talking about 2,000 years uh, earlier, where they didn't give you medals. When you competed in the games and you trained very hard to be able to win those games, much like our athletes do, they would bend over and they would have this this wreath placed on their head. Sometimes it was made of olive branches. Sometimes it was celery stalks that had been woven together. Sometimes it was a laurel wreath. And so when it says there, hold on so that no one can take your crown, that is athletic imagery. That, that's, um, that's someone who has trained, who has competed, who has persevered and who, who has finished. And Jesus is saying, stay in the race. In Mark Beaumont terms, it would be stay on the bike. You know, stay on the bike, keep moving so that nobody can take your crown. It's interesting here, apparently there is something that can be given um, and there is something that can be lost. And I I think he's talking here not about the soul. I don't think he's talking about salvation. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is talking about rewards that he intends to give to people who suffer faithfully, who are able to to, you know, he's saying, look, hold on, I don't want you to lose your reward. It's interesting, of the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation, of the seven, two of them receive no rebuke. Two of them are are not, he doesn't, they get no correction. Five churches are told, hey, there's some things that you can do to be better. There's some things that I expect of you. There's some stuff that you're doing that has to stop. There's some other stuff that you're not doing that needs to start, but these two churches, um, Smyrna and Philadelphia don't get such correction. All they're told is just, hang on, man. Hang on. Don't, don't, don't let go of the rope. Just hang in there a little bit longer. Don't let your spirit sour. Don't let your soul become bitter. May this be the type of suffering, I think Jesus would say, where you don't push away from me and there's not a wedge between me and you, but may this be the kind of suffering that draws you to me Hang in there. Now, look at me for a minute. I want your attention. I want to make sure you're with me. I don't know what's going on in the room this morning. I don't know what you've walked in here with. I don't know where you are on your 18,000 mile journey where you're trying to get something done. I don't know whether you just started and you need a shot of caffeine or whether you're halfway there or you're almost home. But look at me. No matter how hard it is, no matter how, how you're suffering, Hang in there. Don't give up. Hold on to what you have. The second image is that of a crown. Before we move to the third image, I want to check back in on, on Mark Beaumont. He, he has biked thousands of miles. He, he leaves Paris. He goes through France, Germany, Poland, the Ukraine, Romania, Albania, Turkey. Iran and Pakistan and now he's going to come into Thailand and when he gets to Thailand he comes into Thailand during monsoon season okay Um, and we're going to see a little snippet of him going through Thailand and then there's a little break and then he's going to go on to Australia where he encounters a, a totally different problem in Australia he meets headwinds he's going to reference five kilometer headwinds that's about three miles an hour for us that sounds like not a lot, but here's what you need to understand. For him on this journey, if he's logging eight hours a day, that means another 25 miles for him. He has purposed that he needs to cover 100 miles a day, and with the headwind, it's keeping him back, and he has to spend more time on the bike, and it's, it's just brutal for him. So let's check up on him in Thailand, and then you'll also see a, a clip from Australia.
1: In the first two legs of his journey, Mark has travelled over seven and a half thousand miles through Europe and half of Asia. In leg three, he hopes to complete his journey through the southern hemisphere as he cycles through Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Australia and New Zealand. He's arrived in Asia at the start of the monsoon season and has no choice but to cycle through the torrential rain and risk losing valuable time.
2: I don't normally mind rain but um, this is like angry rain <laughs> it's always painful it was so heavy it just pounds and bounces I've never I've never ridden in rain like it I suppose that's um monsoon rain
1: after riding for three days mark is about 200 miles from the Malaysian border but conditions are getting worse well, it's
0: properly,
2: properly Hopefully pouring it down, this is definitely what we'll remember Thailand for, a lot of rain. The wind coming in, it's slowing me down by about five kilometers an hour. Just like the wind pushed me along at, you know, five kilometers an hour in Thailand. It's slowing me down by about the same amount here. So. I'm having to put long hours in the bike to, to just get my 160 a day. I'll make it today, but I'm going to stay on the bike for over nine hours. I don't know whether you can even hear me because of that wind. Um, Today uh, today I'm feeling absolutely terrible. I've got um, pretty bad calluses on my my Skin calluses from the saddle sores, which have been developing. Saddle sores are getting pretty chronic, and uh, just the energy levels—I feel—I so, feel incredibly weak. Um, real struggle to keep going on the bike. I don't know what—I don't know what to do. I just feel it's absolutely ruining me. It's not sustainable, um, and these—the um, the saddle sores are again really really bad
0: what do you say to a guy like that he's 9,000 miles in he's got 9,000 miles to go he's only halfway there he's got physical ailments now that are keeping him from being able to do what he set out to do he's ready to quit what, what do you say? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're halfway there. And, and you would say, Brett, I, it's, this is not sustainable. You say, hang in there. Just think about the next mile. The first image was the image of an open door. The second is a crown. The third image is that of a pillar. A pillar. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. And you say, that's real helpful. God's going to make me a pillar. That's what I've always wanted. I'm getting the stuffing kicked out of me. Life is hard. God's going to make me a pillar in the temple of my God. Woo. I think this communicated something different to them that it would communicate to us. Lock in for a minute, because I'm going to try and help you to understand this. I think when we're done with this particular part, you'll understand it better um, based on what I'm about to say. If you go to certain cities, there are certain things that we associate with those cities. If you come into St. Louis, you see the St. Louis Arch. When you, when you think about Paris, maybe you think about the Eiffel Tower. In the city of Philadelphia, uh, it would have been the main temple. And there would have been pillars in that temple. I want to show you a, an image of a coin Well, what you see on the uh, left-hand side is an image of the particular emperor. I don't know who that is, but he was important. He was an emperor. He was a big-shot government official. And on the flip side of that coin, what you would have found was a picture of a building with columns. That would have been the temple probably to that emperor, and the columns are very prevalent there. Here's what you need to understand about pillars in this particular time, especially temple pillars. Because of all the earthquakes, they were designed to withstand earthquakes. They were earthquake resistant. They were engineered differently. And many times, when these earthquakes would happen in these cities, while other parts of the city might fall down and, and what you would find would be rubble, if you went back after the earthquake, one of the things you would find standing many times were the, temp- the, the pillars that were left where the temple was still standing because they'd been built by temples that were, or by pillars that were so strong. And here this church that lives in very insecure, very uncertain times is told, I will make you secure and certain, and I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. But the image goes on, it's not just a pillar, it's a pillar with some writing on it. There are three different things that are written. We find those in in verse 12, the second part of verse 12. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. I'm going to write on them the name of my God. I'm going to write on them the, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I will also write on them my new name. He does not tell us what that new name will be. So, first of all, I made a pillar in the temple of my God. Secondly, there's going to be some chiseling on me where, where some things are written on me. Uh, the name of my God's going to be written on me, the name of the city of my God, and then Jesus says a new name. We're not told what that is. And I think the point here is not to dwell on what is the new name. I think the point should be that we should focus in on, I want that new name written on me. I want that name written on me. These people were so insecure, even their city had changed names five different times. They really couldn't even tell you what the name of their city was. And Jesus says, no, I will write on you the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Welcome in, welcome home. To people living in insecurity and uncertainty, Jesus says, I have something for you. I have certainty. I have security my door is open. I think Jesus is saying that when the final story is written and rewards are given and the door is open and the new city comes, that what we stand to gain eclipses what we have lost. I want to join Mark one more time before we go home today. It's been 194 miles, or I'm sorry, 194 days. He has broken the world record by two months And he now comes back into Paris. He's ridden under the triumphal arch, and he's about to be embraced by his mom. Let's watch this.
1: Job done. Job done. Job done. Five days later, the new Guinness World Record is confirmed. Three years in the making. Mark's dream has finally come true.
0: What does this mean? It means that there is a difference between suffering and suffering well. And it means that suffering can either be a greenhouse for our faith to grow even stronger, or suffering can be the place where our faith goes to die. And it means that we have a choice in how we will respond when suffering visits us. We have a choice. Will it be something that draws you closer to God, or will it be something which happens for many where they finally decide, you know what, no, I'm done, I'm walking away? What will it be? Would you let the words of Jesus just kind of spill? I don't know what's going on in your world today. A lot of it's not my business, but I know, I, I know this. I know based on what was said to me, walking out, people walking out after the first service people in tears who said, Brett, you have no idea. You have no idea what's going on in my world. You have no idea how I'm hurt. You have no idea how what you said today made sense for me. How will you suffer? Will you suffer? Or will you suffer well? And will you hear the words of Jesus? Hang on. Don't let go. Don't lose your crown. Let's pray together. Father, in this room are many people, some of whom have unspeakable, untold suffering. And Lord, maybe they walked in here this morning trying to figure out how they were going to put one foot in front of the other after they left. Maybe they're at a point, maybe it's 9,000 miles for them and they got 9,000 to go and they do not know how they're going to do it. They think it just needs to be over. Father, I pray that you would give them a measure of resolve. I pray that you would revive them. I pray that you would step in. Father, there's certain people this morning that have gone through some suffering and they've said, that's it for me, I'm done, I don't want to talk to God anymore. I pray that you would draw them back. Father, would our suffering be a a greenhouse for our faith to grow and that we may honor you well. It's in Jesus' name we pray.